As you can tell from the slide behind me, we're going to be in Acts 11 if you're not there already. I will read through our text in just a moment, but maybe if you're still flipping there, then I want you to consider your church's missionaries, your global partners that you maybe support either here in North America or around the world. And if you're anything like me, you see the names of these people. Maybe you have a missions board, or maybe you see it in announcements, uh, or you hear about them. Maybe you receive their news updates and their prayer letters, and you hear a lot about these people. But then every, you know, two, three, four years, then your missionaries come back and they come visit your church. And you finally, especially if you're maybe new to the church and you haven't met them before, you finally get to put a face to the name. You finally get to put a personality to the name of those missionaries. Our sending church back home in Minnesota, Chisago Lakes Baptist, we support some missionaries that actually just retired off the field after 50 years of ministry in France. Their names are Bernard and Bernice. And Bernard is actually a Frenchman. His wife is American. And so uh, just last winter, Natalie and I had the opportunity to meet Bernard and Bernice for the first time. And as you would expect, when you have a Frenchman who is from France, has done 50 years of ministry in France, Bernard has a very French sense of humor. And so as we are trying to engage Bernard and Bernice and getting to know them around our lunch table after church, then our group would crack jokes, things that we think are funny, and we would look over at Bernard and expecting him to laugh in just a deadpan face. And we realized, hmm, there's a cultural difference here in our sense of humor. But then Bernard would say something that he thinks is absolutely hysterical, and we are sitting here, as the Americans, sitting here like, hmm, slightly humorous maybe, and Bernard would be in stitches. Now, you know, you probably know those people who... When they laugh, they are hysterical just by their laugh in and of itself. You begin laughing not because what they said was necessarily super funny, but because they just have that contagious laugh. Bernard was one of those people. That weekend was so helpful for my wife and I to get to know one of our partners that we partner with and hearing about their ministry. One of the things, of course, after 50 years of ministry, we got to hear the highs and the lows of what God was doing in France through the ministry that Bernard and Bernice were in. One of the things that impressed me so, so much about Bernard was that every time that he referred to the work, God's work that was there in France, he never once said, my church, my ministry, our ministry, our work. It was always God's church in France, the work that God is doing in France, the ministry that God is doing that we get to be a steward of. Countless times as he told 50 years of highs and lows of ministry in France, never once did he say mine or our ministry. It was always God's. That really stood out to me. After hearing who knows how many missionary presentations in my life, hearing somebody so clearly give God the ownership and God the glory for the work that was happening. And as I was thinking about that, we want to look in our text this morning at God's hand at work. Anytime we hear a missions presentation, anytime we hear about global workers, we are seeing the hand of God at work in wherever it is that God has placed them. And so as we look at our text, I want us to consider this morning this single thought that God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. 
God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. Let me bring us up to speed just a little bit before we read our text in Acts 11, because if you've read through the book of Acts before, you know it's a narrative. It's a story. Things are happening in our story before we get to chapter 11. In chapter 10, we see the story, the saga of Cornelius, and maybe if you're unfamiliar with this, this was the first time that we really see Gentiles coming to Christ and given the gift of the Holy Spirit. This really is the spark, if you will, that sets the gospel ablaze now, not only to the Jews in Jerusalem, but to Gentiles, to non-Jews. And this would be the spark that spreads the gospel fire around the world. In verse 18 of chapter 11, the church in Jerusalem hears about this, and they say to the Gentiles, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is a pivotal point in our narrative of the book of Acts, and we are now seeing what exactly that means when the gospel light goes ablaze. And so would you look with me at our text, chapter 11, I'm going to read starting in verses 19 to the end of the chapter in verse 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. What we want to look at this morning in our text is really a three-step progression of what we see happening in the city of Antioch. We want to see the start of this missional church. We want to see then the training, the teaching in this missional church. And then finally, we want to see the laborers that are being sent out from this missional church. And we're going to look at that in a three-step progression. So to begin with, the start of our missional church, the start of the missional church here in Acts 11. How does the gospel get to Antioch? So the beginning of our text in verse 19, the author of Acts, Luke, Luke tells us that because of what happened back in Acts chapter 7 with Stephen, if you remember Stephen, the first Christian martyr dying for his faith at the feet of Saul, who we see in our text this morning. Because of that persecution that happened, persecution is now beginning and Christians are running for their life. They are running to escape what was coming after them, the Jewish religious leaders persecuting them for their faith. Now, 
We're already talking about a lot of city names and region names. If you are anything like me and you happen to be a visual learner, hopefully this will help. If you look at our little gold star at the bottom, that's the start of our church there in Jerusalem. Because of persecution happening, we have believers who are running for their life to the area of Phoenicia, to Cyprus, and up to the city of Antioch. Now, Antioch is going to be about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. They're running to this city, only speaking the gospel to fellow Jews, because anything outside of that may cause more persecution from the Roman government. And so they run, they flee, 300 miles north to the city of Antioch. Now, a little bit of information about the city of Antioch at this time during the Roman Empire. It would have actually been the third largest city of the Roman Empire at this time, behind the city of Rome and the city of Alexandria. Because of it being a major metropolis, many people from around the Roman Empire are going to flock to Antioch. And with that, they're going to be bringing with them their culture and their religion. Many of those being polytheistic, many gods, worship of many gods, and with that, much sexual immorality. Antioch was not known for being a very moral city. Actually, one of the ancient Roman satirists back in this time described Antioch as the place where all the sexual immorality and pagan corruption would flow down the river into the capital city of Rome and corrupt Rome as this capital city. Hopefully that gives you just a little bit of a picture of the type of city that Antioch is, and this is where Christians are fleeing to. They are fleeing to a place that we might look at and say, that is like the last place that as a Christian you may want to be. But they run there, fleeing persecution, only sharing the gospel with Jews. But then we are introduced to these men of Cyprus and Cyrene. In verse 20, when they come to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. Here, this is when the gospel begins actually spreading to more than just Jews. Greek-speaking Jews, more to the Greek culture, more to those who are not Jews, more to the Gentiles. And as I said, this is a very pivotal point in the book of Acts and in the history of the church that God is building. Believers are running here speaking the good news. And if you remember what just happened in chapter 10 with Cornelius, that Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, we now see happening on a mass scale. What happens in Antioch when these believers come and are spreading the gospel, verse 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. This group of people, largely Gentiles, accept the gospel. People are coming to Christ. And if you notice, look at what Luke tells us. It was the hand of the Lord. It was not because these men of Cyprus and Serene had dynamic and charismatic personalities. And wow, they have it all together. Let's listen to them. No. It was the hand of God at work in Antioch. What I love about this is because this serves even as a reminder for us. This serves as a reminder to us that it is God who builds his church. It is not the pastor. It is not the missionary. It is not the evangelist. It is not the person with a dynamic personality. At the end of the day, it is God who is building his church. Praise God that he always keeps his promises. And when he promises, I will build my church, it will happen. When we share that hope of eternal life through the message of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is the one at work. 
and we can praise him for that. It is not us, and that should relieve us that God will build his church, and we see that happening in Antioch. We have this great number of people, largely Gentiles, who come to Christ. Now, we have seen isolated events of this, maybe if you're thinking back in chapter 8 with the Ethiopian eunuch, and you're thinking Cornelius, this is the first time largely on a large-scale non-Jews, Gentiles, probably like the majority of people here today, Gentiles receive the gospel. God had flung the door wide open for the gospel to be present and people come to Christ. And so what happens when you see a group of believers come together? What happens? We are doing it this morning. You form a church. The church, when a group of believers come together and meet together, there is a church that is formed. And so we see in Antioch a young church, a brand new church, new believers, but a church that is formed in Antioch, a church that is formed outside of the Jewish world. This is a big deal. So then what happens? What happens after we see the start of this church? We see then the instruction, the instruction to this missional church. Look with me, verse 22, if you've got your Bible open. The report of this, so everything that happened in Antioch, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. The church, 300 miles south in Jerusalem, they hear what just happened. They hear what has happened, and they are curious. They see that God has done something in Antioch outside of our Jewish borders, and they want to see firsthand what is happening. So they send Barnabas. They send somebody from their church to say, go see what the hand of the Lord is doing. So we see a solo laborer here. We see Barnabas going up. Now, this is not the first time that we have seen Barnabas in the book of Acts. Perhaps that name sounds familiar to you. We've seen him already in chapter 4 as somebody who sold property and gave it to the church. We've seen him already listed as a son of encouragement. We've seen him play a pretty key role, but now we see the church looking at Barnabas and saying, go see what God is doing. And so what we are given about Barnabas in verse 24, he was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Barnabas likely had a really good reputation in his church that when they think, who is it that we can send to see the work of the Lord happening? Barnabas. Barnabas from our church is a likely candidate that we're going to go send to see what is happening. Perhaps he had, God had granted him a gift to be able to discern the work of the Lord. But Barnabas was a key figure in seeing what was going to happen. Again, he gets there, and in verse 24, and a great many people were added to the Lord. This is the second time we see that happening. The second time that God's hand is at work, and we see many people coming to Christ here in Antioch, and Barnabas is seeing all of this. He encourages them to stay steadfast, to keep going in the faith that you have received. But there comes a problem. There are so many people coming to the Lord. And you're like, well, how is that a problem? Good news, many people are getting saved. Bad news is there's so much work to be done. Barnabas recognizes, I need help. I need somebody who is going to help me in this ministry. So Barnabas goes to join a team. Look at verse 25 and 26, first part of 26. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. 
Barnabas thinks through who is going to be a strategic person that can help me in the ministry that God is clearly doing here, and he thinks Saul. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, and if you're familiar maybe with chapter 8, when you realize that Stephen was martyred at the hand of Saul, we've seen Saul's amazing conversion to Christ, and we now see him being selected to come and help. Now, Saul, other name for Paul, Saul's his Hebrew name, we see him later in the book of Acts, but as his ministry really focuses on Gentiles, we see that name, his Greek name, Paul, same guy, okay? So if you're thinking, oh, I thought it was Paul, Saul, Paul, same dude. So we see this shift that he goes and looks for Saul because he says, I need help. I need somebody to help, and he goes and looks for Saul in Tarsus. That's the last time that he's heard of Saul. If you remember, Saul actually had to escape Jerusalem because of persecution, because people were actually looking for him after his conversion. And so the Christians are like, hey, get out of here, go hide, go to Tarsus. That was several years ago. And so Barnabas goes looking for this guy who's going to help him. I think this is actually pretty strategic if you think about it, because this would have been a really good way for Barnabas to help validate Saul, later to be Paul, as an apostle. That God had called him to the apostle of the Gentiles, and now Barnabas brings him on board to his team and says, come help me in this new Gentile church. So they go back to Antioch, and what do they do? Look at the second half of verse 26. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So what is one of the first things they do at this church? They go and they teach for a year. What is one of the first things a new convert, a new believer in Jesus Christ needs? They need to know, what do I do with this book? How do I live this out? They need to understand what God has given to us in his word. And so they go and they train and they teach for an entire year. That is why a missionary's job is really never done because a missionary may share the gospel and somebody comes to Christ, but there is the training, there is the discipling so that those people can go and do that. We see Barnabas and Paul training and discipling, helping the believers grow into maturity in Christ so that they know God. Even think, consider of somebody you have had the opportunity to lead to the Lord. You've shared the gospel with maybe once, maybe many times, and you finally see God save somebody. And you sit there and you're like, wow, I just saw that happen. I just saw God work. And you're so excited and you say, this is amazing. Welcome to the family of God. God bless you. And you walk off. Most of us are like, no, don't do that. Because we understand when somebody comes to Christ, they need those next steps. What does that look like? Think back to when you got saved. Did you know what you were doing? Probably not. You needed somebody to come alongside you and train and teach. And that is exactly what we see Paul and Barnabas doing in Antioch. I love the little note that Luke gives us at the end of 26, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It's interesting because in today's society, Christian can mean quite a variety of things. But when you look at here, and you look even in the history, this was likely a way that people in the city of Antioch were able to group these people together. Well, they're not just Jews, so we can't call them Jews. They're not just Gentiles, because there's probably some Jews in there, so we can't just call them that. What, what, how do, what's the common denominator? It is Christ. 
These people who are following these teachings of Christ, who are talking about Christ, who are associated with Christ, oh, you, you Christian. It likely was actually a derogatory term, but a way to lump them together. But you know what's amazing is the fact that even the unsaved world looked at that and said, we know what unifies you together, Christ. Could that be said about us? Could that be said about us today, that people could look at the way that you as a local church here function, that you as a family function in your neighborhood, and they would look at you and say, what ties you together? You're closely associated with Christ. Could people say that about me? If people can look at our lives and not actually tell that there's the common denominator of Christ being what draws us together, there's a big problem with how we live. Christ must be seen in our life. So we've seen the start of this missional church. We've seen the instruction to this missional church. And then we get to see the exciting part of this church coming full circle to when the laborers are sent, the laborers from this missional church. This is when we see that transition of a brand new baby church coming full circle and showing maturity in Christ that they themselves would send out gospel workers. Look at verses 27 and 28. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So, so there's a problem here. So this prophet Agabus, given this gift by the Holy Spirit to validate, help validate the church in the early stages, he prophesies that there's going to be a famine. Now in our North American context, and we read famine, we're like, okay, yeah, no food, no rain. But remember, context of where they're at, a famine is devastating. Like, this is bad news. There was actually five famines during the reign of Claudius, and this was likely probably the worst famine, which happened in AD 47. There's a famine that's going to happen. God gave them the foreknowledge to know that through this prophet. And so there's this coming famine, and look how the church in Antioch responds. I love this. Look at how they respond. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. They meet a need. So we have our problem. There's a famine. What's the solution? Church in Antioch goes to meet a need. They say there's a problem. We can meet it. Let us take care of our brothers and sisters there in Jerusalem. When we look at genuine Christianity, we see that genuine Christianity is marked by a love and a compassion for one another. That ought to mark us as we work with other believers. We saw that happen at the beginning of Acts. What happened? When the church came to be, then what? People were selling their items. They were giving to the church. They were taking care of one another. They were fellowshipping with one another. An awesome example of what that actually looks like to care and come alongside for genuine love for one another. Generosity and love for one another continued in the beginning of Acts. We see that through Acts, and hopefully, Lord willing, we see that happening today as a mark of a true believer. We see this, I think, we see this happening in our world today. You've probably seen this. You probably have had opportunities to do this in your community. One thing that was really fun and really, like, honestly awe-inspiring to see was how quickly things like this happened. If you remember last winter, when everything in Ukraine went down, Natalie and I had actually just landed in the Netherlands, 
uh, last February, and we went for a two-week trip. And the day that we landed in the Netherlands was the day that everything broke out in Ukraine. What a day to land in Europe, right? So we're in Europe, and of course, we're getting like phone calls and text messages from back in the States. Like, are you guys okay? I'm like, we're fine. Different country. But what we saw happen was we got there on a weekend. We go to church on Sunday, and the church is like praying for the believers in Ukraine, praying for the whole situation. And what was so amazing to see was how fast the body of Christ responded to meet a need. Within one week of being there in the Netherlands, the second Sunday that we were there, there had already been an entire relief team from the church established. One of the ladies in the church, whose brother was a pastor in Slovakia, right on the Ukrainian border, their church set up a relief station. And so this church in the Netherlands is like sending all of these things and organizing this amazing feat in one week. And no doubt we saw things like that happen here. How quickly people are responding to the needs of believers around the world. That is a mark of genuine Christianity when we love one another, when we care for one another. So this church in Jerusalem sends relief. They send, by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, down to Jerusalem to send relief in the moment of need. But they send them from their church. They send them from the church in Antioch. Ever wonder why we send missionaries? We see this pattern in Scripture. Churches send missionaries. It's not the mission board. It's not a missionary waking up one day and saying, huh, I'm going to go move overseas. No, it is a church that sends gospel workers. And this growing church in Antioch sees a need, sees a genuine need for believers to go help, and they send from their church Saul and Barnabas to go do that. And then they come back at the end of chapter 12, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So they go back. If you're familiar with the term furlough, You go back to your churches that are supporting and partnering with you to bring a report of what God has done. We see this pattern in Scripture. They come back, they give a report, and what's so, so fun, honestly, fun to see is when the church does it again. They send Paul and Barnabas out again in chapter 13, and this time to Cyprus. If you're familiar with Paul's first missionary journey, that's from this church. The church sees needs, and they send out from themselves to go do gospel work. We see this model of building and establishing and planting churches to then reproduce that to happen again, and that does not just end in the book of Acts. We see that happening today. We see people going out for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ and planting churches so that others will go do that, that the gospel is spread. It is a beautiful cycle when we see that happening. So we see this church going in full circle from the start, from the instruction, and the laborers sent from this missionary church. So let me ask you, what part are you playing in God's plan for the nations? I said this was our big idea, right? That God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. So let me ask, what part are you playing? What part am I playing? What roles are we playing as God is building his church around the world? I mentioned it was not a one-and-done event here in Acts 11. It is continuing today that God is building his church. Notice that I'm not asking if you have a role. I am asking what is your role. It is assumed that believers would help further this, that we help with God's plan for the nations. 
not because God needs us, but God chooses to use us. Let me give you just several ways that that might look like. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but let me give you a couple suggestions of what that could look like as you consider what role you're playing in God's plan for the nations. Number one, you expect the missionary to come in and tell you this. What does that look like for that you would share Jesus with others? Who is it that God has put in your immediate context here in Madison or in the general area, in your family, in your coworker relationships, in your neighborhood? Who is it that God has put in your sphere of influence that I will never meet that needs to know about Jesus? Who is it that you can share the gospel with? And perhaps you're here this morning and you are that person in need of the gospel. You are the person who has maybe visited, maybe this is your first time, and you have heard this, or this is your first time, and you do not know what that would mean to have an eternal hope and a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you, today is the day of salvation, that you can know that you have a hope found in Jesus Christ. When you turn from your sin, when you believe in Christ as the Son of God in his death and burial and resurrection, you can know that you have an eternal hope. If you do not know that, If you're here this morning and you are uncomfortable about what I just said and you do not know if you are going to heaven, you have wonderful pastors here. You have wonderful members here. We get to be here for this Sunday who would love to talk through that more with you. And if you are a believer, if you know that you have the security and hope found in Jesus Christ, praise God for that. Who else can you share that with? Share Jesus with others. Number two, pray regularly for your missionaries, your global partners. Who is it that you already as a church are supporting what God is doing through that family, through that individual, maybe in another part of the world? Pray regularly for them. Usually, when we're at churches, I mention something about a prayer warrior. And if I mention that, you could probably think through at least one person in your church that you would put in the category of a prayer warrior. Somebody you know is so faithful in prayer, on their knees in prayer every day for long periods of time. If you enjoy that, if that's you, pray for your missionaries. If that's not you, pray for your missionaries. Pray regularly for your global partners. Number three, communicate with your missionaries. As now, the missionary... This is a whole new context I have only in the past year. As now the traveling missionary, when our partnering churches communicate regularly with us, that is a wonderful blessing to us. We're encouraged. We get to know our churches even a little bit better, even when we're not there in person. Communicating with them. Let them know that you're praying for them. Ask them, what are specific ways that we can pray for you? What are the things that you need? How can we help? Communicate. We live in 2023. Communicating with missionaries is like, the easiest it's ever been in history. Communicate with your partners. Be a blessing to them. Consider how you can send a gift. Tangible ways to say, we love you, we care for you, we support you. Many times, again, we think money. But have you ever considered what other gifts you could send? Maybe you've got a missionary family, and you know that their kids really miss Oreos from the States. You can encourage a missionary family by sending them a box of Oreos. That might sound so trivial, But when a missionary knows that their churches care about them and that they're praying for them and care about their children, it's amazing how much you encourage workers somewhere else in the world to continue on with what God has called them to do. Send them a gift, something tangible. Perhaps they do have a need. Perhaps there's a building project. Perhaps there's something going on and they do need finances. Send them a financial gift. 
we have so many opportunities to encourage our partners. One of the biggest ways that you can encourage is go visit. Actually go, take a week, take two weeks. Go visit your global partners wherever God has them placed. Encourage them by your presence, by praying with them, by helping where necessary, letting them talk to you, share their burdens. Visit them in person and see what God is doing. What is so cool about this one is when you go to visit your missionaries and then you come back, you have a sense of ownership because you've seen what God is doing. And you share that with your church. And we all then get excited because we have a firsthand report of what's happening. And then lastly, have you ever considered going to the field yourself? Have you ever considered how God could use you in another context for the sake of the gospel. During my pastoral ministry at our church, I worked primarily with our youth group especially, and I would tell our teens, if you have never once wrestled with the possibility that God may have you on the mission field, do that before you graduate high school. Wrestle with it once. I'm going to expand that a little bit more to not just high school students, but to every person in this room, if you have never once considered how God could use you overseas in another ministry context, wrestle with that. Pray about that. We were at one missions conference in Minnesota, and there was another missionary couple there, and they were in their late 50s. They said they just became empty nesters, and they probably had about 15 years. And they're like, we have about 15 years before we retire. We would love to do that overseas for God. Like, how often do you see that happening? What was amazing was people, not just the young adults, not just the high school students, seeing God could use me overseas. How could God use you in another mission's context for the glory of Christ, that the gospel would spread, that God would build his church? So God desires that his church follows his global plan for the nations. What part are you, as an individual, as a local church, what part are you playing in the building of God's church? When we look at Acts 11, we see a model. We see what God does. And praise God that he is still doing that today. Would you bow your head with me as I close in prayer? God, we are so grateful that you would choose to use sinners like us in a work that we cannot do on our own. Lord, but through your grace and through your mercy, those who know you, you call us to make disciples, to preach the gospel. Lord, and I ask that you would call gospel workers from this church, that you would use your spirit even now to be working in the hearts of people here, that you would raise up for yourself gospel workers around the world from this church. God, I ask that you would give each believer here opportunities and boldness to proclaim the gospel in the context that you've put us in right now. Lord, I pray that we would seek those opportunities. And if there are any here that do not yet know you, Lord, I ask that you would use your spirit to convict of sin and to draw them to Christ. Lord, we are grateful for all that we have in Jesus Christ, and we are so, so undeserving. Lord, would you help us this week to play a part in what you are doing around the world. We are so grateful that you use us, and it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.